We are in a series in the book of 2 Corinthians. So a little bit of context to 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote this book uh, after he had written several other letters. In fact, in the book of, of 2 Corinthians, he mentioned several other letters. We know we have 1 Corinthians and we have 2 Corinthians, but he described some other painful ones that he had sent. He'd also talked about other visits that he had had with the church in Corinth. Uh, but there's a unique relationship. It's almost a love-hate relationship between Paul and this church. I mean, he was the founding pastor of that church. He had gone to Corinth specifically. It was a very uh, strategic city in the Roman Empire. And he went there, established a church, was there for a couple years, and then went on to establish other churches. Uh, but in the meantime, he keeps getting reports that concern him about the church in Corinth. They were not a passive church. They were not passive-aggressive whatsoever. They actually were very active, and they were very much an exploring church. And, and that led to the letter of 1 Corinthians, where uh, their worship, when they gathered together, was problematic. And, and, and Paul took uh, issue with some of the things they were doing, so he wrote a corrective letter, if you will, about the way they gathered together. And then there were other letters that apparently were pretty painful that were written in between that and 2 Corinthians. But now what's going on in 2 Corinthians is that apparently the, this painful relationship was got, had gotten to the point where the church in Corinth decided that Paul no longer had authority over them, and, and they questioned his apostleship. And so there was, there was a, a, a real fractitious relationship going on and broken relationship, which helps get, give us context to some of the things that Paul's writing here. Uh, we called this series uh, Below the Surface because often what you see going on on the surface is about 20% of reality. The rest of reality is uh, below the surface. And that's why we chose an iceberg as, as kind of that, that, that uh, symbol of what we're talking about is that you can look at me and you can see certain things and you can see some truths about me, but you would have to sit down with me to get down to a lot more of the reality of who I am. And that's true for each of us here in the room. And, and so what is going on with Paul and this church is that Paul is now getting below the surface. He's getting real. Just in the three messages we've spoken so far, look at what they've been about. The first one was about going through hardship and giving purpose to hardship. You know, the, Paul was going through a very, very difficult time, but so was the church. And he was saying, you know, the reason why we go through hardship, even if the hardship's the result of each other and the way we interrelate, the reason why we go through hardship is because we then learn how God offers compassion and care. And when we receive God's compassion and care, then it helps us then know how to provide compassion and care to others. And so there's very distinct purpose when we go through difficult things. Then the next week we looked at where he goes into and he starts to peel away the layers of hardship between him and then when he starts talking about, you know, He's being honest with them. He's shooting straight. He's trying to help them grow in maturity. But sometimes when we're helping another grow in maturity, it means saying hard things. And often we withhold hard conversations from other people because we don't want to suffer the difficulty of the response or the difficulty of the fruit of that hard conversation. And what ends up happening is we end up robbing other people of their own maturation and growth and awareness of themselves because we choose to protect ourselves and withhold things that maybe could be helpful to another individual. 
But having said that, we also hinder ourselves by not being good recipients of hard conversations. Where we, when somebody comes to us, we get very defensive and we, we shut them out or we make them feel like they were ridiculous and even saying what they said to us. And, and we, we cut them off at the knees and then we kind of get a reputation. It's like, well, you really can't be honest with that individual. And then you are hindered then from your own personal maturation and growth because you choose not to receive. And so we've, those are the first two messages. I mean, that's getting into some very difficult stuff between uh, Paul and this church in Corinth, which then helps us understand things. But then last week on forgiveness, the, the, the weapon of forgiveness in God's hands is, is so powerful. When, when we discover what it means to forgive someone, even when maybe they don't deserve our forgiveness or they haven't even acknowledged that they, they erred and they hurt us, when you forgive them, you are using that as a, as a weapon in the hands of God where he, correct, he helps you heal. He helps you get to a better place, but he also can use it as an example to others of how God forgives us even when we don't deserve it. That is such a weapon, but equally so, unforgiveness is probably the most powerful weapon in the hand of the enemy. Satan loves to use unforgiveness to wield as a, a bitter root in our souls. If we live under unforgiveness, eventually it will change our character. It will hinder our spirit and it will affect our relationships. So here it is. Those are the first three weeks of, of diving into this book. So now where does Paul go? He goes into the actual issue that is separating them. It's this idea of, of, is he valid as a minister of the gospel? Is he somebody they should listen to? And what Paul ends up doing is sharing how the, the source of what truly changes life is not Paul, nor is it any of them, but rather it's the work of the Spirit. And so he actually, in this text today, helps us go on a journey of realizing it's not about you and me. It's about getting near the victorious one. And so we're going to begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. And so if you could just go there, we'll begin. And he gives a little context to where he's at in this moment. It says, Paul says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. Paul always traveled with a key companion. He always ministered in two. And, and so he wasn't at peace ministering, even though God had opened the door uh, for the gospel of Christ. Then he moves on. He says, so then I said goodbye to them and I went to Macedonia. And again, the gospel took root in Macedonia. We know that from other texts. And, and so then you got this situation where he's like, okay, I've been traveling. You and I have been hearing words of each other. I've been sending letters. I've been getting reports from about you. And, and so while this has been going on, God keeps opening doors for the gospel. Again, keep in mind, they're saying he's invalid as an apostle or as a minister of the gospel. But yet, he's being used in other places and God is opening doors. But then he says this, verse 14, so important. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are, being, who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death and to the other the aroma that brings life. 
And who is equal to such a task? So Paul's giving context, like God is opening doors with me. But then he talks about this triumphal procession and then starts talking about aroma. Now, when my daughter came into first service this morning and she saw the bulletin and saw the title of the sermon, What's That Smell? She started laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? And she points to the title. I said, oh, honey, that's not what this means. Because in our household, when somebody says, what's that smell? It's not about what we're talking about today. And I'm just going to leave it at that, okay? And, and so she was having a little bit of a laugh. And it's like, no, 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 that's not a message I would speak up front here. But if you don't understand anything I'm saying, that means your household just isn't quite like mine. But, uh, but I'm going to guess that many of you know what I'm talking about. But having said this, the key context is this picture, this, this word picture that Paul is giving about a triumphal procession. Now, he speaks of we're being led as captives, a part of Christ's triumphal procession. Now, I'm going to correct the English text here of the NIV edition of 2011. Typically, we find that the NIV 2011 is, is, has a lot of good validity. It's a good text. That's why we teach from it. There are others that we find also reputable, like the ESV and uh, the NASB. And my personal favorite is actually NIV 1984 edition, but they're not printing it anymore. Uh, but having said that, the English translations do their best at trying to convey accurately from the Greek text what it would mean if it was spoken in English. Sometimes the translators do a little bit too much effort. And they've done that in this text, in my opinion, in verse 14. Only the NIV 2011 and the New Living Translation use the term captives in the English language, being led as captives as part of Christ's triumphal procession. Well, when I was I picked up a note from a commentary as, as he was talking about who, you know, how we're being led and what part in the triumphal procession we are. He said something that was opposite of captive. I'm like, wait, what's going on here? So then I go to the Greek and I start looking and it's like the word captive is not even in the text. So let me explain what has happened by the translators in this moment. What has gone on is that in a triumphal procession in Rome, there were several different groupings of people that would be a part of that procession. The procession would happen because a victory had happened over another country of some kind, a significant victory. In fact, it would require that it was a victory where over 5,000 were slain. That was kind of like the threshold. It couldn't be a small victory. It must be at least 5,000 or more were conquered. And so when that would happen, a king or general that oversaw that battle was given the opportunity to parade through Rome, a triumphal procession. That parade could last up to two and three days. As part of that long line, that parade, the beginning of the line was the spoils of war, if you will. It was the captives. And it was usually the royal family of the conquered kingdom. Now, most often, the king of that royal family or the patriarch of that royal family was already dead. This is all the offspring. They've been caught and captured. And they're being forced to walk ahead of this triumphal procession. And right behind them would be the conqueror, either again the king or the general. Right behind the king or the general would be the offspring of the king or general. So the children of the victorious one would got to walk right behind him. And, and he was usually propped up on a cart being carried in a gold structure so that he was in the most prominent position in the parade. 
uh, walking alongside of those captives and also along the cart of the victorious king or general were priests shaking incense and, and letting smoke billow out among the people. And it was a pleasing aroma, and they were usually casting flowers that were very aromatic. And so this parade, this procession would smell, and it would permeate the streets beyond the street of the procession. So imagine that for those that would smell this, they could smell it's like a procession is happening, even though they couldn't see it. In fact, the aroma would penetrate the homes and go into bedrooms and closets of the houses as it was so penetrable as, as two days a procession was going on. For those who were excited about the Roman kingdom, that smell was the smell of life and victory. But for those that were ahead of that king or that general. It was the smell of death. You see, those processions often ended at a Colosseum, where then all the spoils of war, those people that had been held captive, were put into an arena, and they'd have to fight to save their lives from, the, the, from wild animals and beasts, while the others cheered on, seeing this entire royal lineage wiped out. So for them, the smell of that aroma was death. And it reminded them of the loss of a father or a patriarch or a key leader. And it was reminding them that they were also en route to die themselves. But that aroma for the children of that general or for that king was, my dad's a hero and I get to be celebrated along with my dad. And behind the royal or behind that family of that general or that king was then the conquering army itself, the ones that actually fought the battle. Then they would got to walk in columns one right after another. So this triumphal procession was a very vivid, very strong word picture to those in that day. And so for the translators of the NIV to have chosen the captives as being the part of the procession that we are is, is highly inaccurate, and it's not even in the text. It was an assumption on their part. The best way to put it is that you can either perceive yourself as part of the victorious army, or you can perceive yourself as part of the victorious offspring of the one who conquered which is likely the best illustration for us to receive. Because it says in most of the English translations and literally in the Greek that we are being led in the triumphal procession of Christ. So we are being led in this victorious procession. A victory has been won and we are part of it and we get to celebrate it as being part of the victorious one being Jesus himself. So in that understanding... We move forward with that word picture and, and begin to unpack it. So Paul is bringing himself to say, perhaps we're willing captives of the victorious one, but more likely a proud soldier or a proud son or daughter being paraded with this conquering king and, and, and being able to enjoy this procession. And therefore, the aroma of that is surrounding that procession is something that feels good, it smells good, and it excites us and arouses us to greater confidence. So Paul is speaking to a church that is saying, you're not valid. You're not the one that we're going to follow. You do not have authority, and, and, and we're not going to receive from you from this correction. And Paul is now saying, listen, in spite of everything, God is opening doors and, I, and we are all being led in this triumphal procession. So he moves and shifts the focus from him, from being on himself, 
to being on the victorious one. Listen, we celebrate the procession of Christ, not the procession of Paul. We celebrate the procession of Christ, and then as we're a part of that procession, we get to then begin to experience the aroma of Christ. And as we're a part of that aroma of Christ, it provides smell of victory to many, but it also is the smell of defeat to others. For some, it's received as life, but for others, it's the reminder of death. So when we walk in, in the procession of Christ, we begin to absorb the aroma of Christ. And Paul is saying that no matter where he went, whether it was Troas or whether he was in Macedonia or when he was in Corinth, everywhere he went, the aroma of Christ was permeating. And as a result, those who were around Paul began to be affected either towards choosing life or acknowledging that we reject the truth of what he's speaking and therefore we're accepting death. Now, there's an in incredible aspect to this, uh, this analogy that we can receive. It says in verse 15, for those who are part of this triumphal procession that are now the aroma and the, of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. That's how 14 ends. So for those of us who are in Christ, we are the, uh, uh, the awareness. When we get around people, we become the awareness of the knowledge of Christ for the others. And as a result, verse 15 is what God says. We become the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are being perishing. So to the one, that aroma brings death. To the other, it brings life. So what basically Paul is saying here is that you and I smell of something. We smell of something, and if we're near God or near Jesus Christ, we're going to smell of Christ. If you're part of a triumphal procession with Christ, the, the incense that was a part of that procession is being absorbed on your clothes. And then if you were to leave and go to another town, they would be able to smell that you are a part of that triumphal procession because the smell of incense would be permeating from you. They understood this they, uh, because it would be days before that smell would leave their clothing. And so they knew that somebody was a part of the procession just by the smell of them. You can also then know that somebody's been with Christ just by the smell of them. You see, I, I think I, this illustration makes so much sense to me. There's a lot of analogies I could have chosen, but I'm going to choose one that's more of a modern day that, that can relate to central Pennsylvania. And that is, I go to the farm show with my family every year. But I choose very carefully what jacket I wear what jeans I wear, what shoes I wear, because when I'm done going through the farm show and when our family's done going through the farm show, what we are wearing smells of the farm show. And if you've ever been to the farm show, you know the smells I'm talking about. It's not the food court. It's usually where the swine and, and the sheep and, and the cows are. You begin to smell of it. Well, there was a, a girl that was in my youth ministry at West Shore that loved the smell so much of the farm show that she had a friend who would always show every year in the farm show uh, dairy cows that she would have her friend take her pillowcases and have them be at the farm show for an entire week. And then she would use those pillowcases for, she'd literally take the one and put it in a plastic bag to seal in the, the smell and she'd use the one pillow for a couple months and then she would switch to the other one and, she, and it would have the smell of the farm show. And she would breathe it in to fall asleep at night. 
You mean none of you do that? I, I, I mean, I, I mean we're, we're living in Lancaster, Lancaster County, the number one county for manure spreading in the entire United States of America. Do you know that? There's more manure spread on our ground in this county than any other county in the United States. So we know what it means to be aromatic. Sometimes here at this church, when you come to church on Sunday, there's chicken farms across the way, and you can smell that. And then there's, all, not to be outbeaten, we also have Lidditz's uh, uh, sewage plant right next to that. And then just beyond there are fields where they like to spread manure, and sometimes even right here in the fields next to us. And so you can show up to church, and you can smell all three things at the same time. Isn't that a blessing? You know, they put incense in the, in the temple of God as a way to draw people into worship, and we just provided the farm to draw you into worship. It's actually run into the building as quick as you can so you don't have to smell it anymore. But the point is, is that if you let something be in the presence of something that smells long enough, it will hold the smell. That girl swore that she could still smell the farm show several months afterwards on that pillowcase. And she, again embraced it and loved it. Imagine if somebody, and again, this is what Paul is saying, that if you're a part of the procession of Christ, you're absorbing the incense of that procession, which then means no matter where you go, the smell that you've been with Christ is upon you. So literally, Paul is advocating for being near Jesus Christ, the victorious one, being near enough to him that your life begins to smell and stink of Jesus Christ. That's the advocation, which is a strange analogy, but yet it makes sense because people knew that when a procession was done, the people would smell of the incense. You knew where they were and where they've been, and you knew that they were part of a victorious party. So, if that's Paul's advocation is saying, listen, church, this isn't about me being an apostle and you not liking my apostleship. This is about our king, Jesus Christ, and being near him enough that our lives have the smell and the aroma of Jesus. Not the smell of our discord, not the smell of our dislike for one another or the, fra the fraction or the disagreements between each other, but it's the smell of Christ is what the world should smell. And as a result, that, that, that can be what changes others' lives. Because if we're near enough to Christ and we truly smell like that, then you cannot help who smells you. It just happens. When I visit somebody's home, there's a smell that's to that home. And the next time I put on my coat two and three days later that might have been in that house, I can smell that home. And it reminds me of where I've been. If our lives are on a daily basis being around Christ, then you will not be able to hide the fact of who you've been near. People will know you're near enough to Jesus Christ. They can smell it on you. They can see it, that there is something different about you. And as a result, it begs questions. For the one that receives, it says it gives life because it's the, what they've been hoping for and what they've been searching for. But to the other that doesn't want to be reminded that they're living for themselves and they don't want any kind of accountability, the smell of that actually reminds them of their death penalty. So our lives actually have an impact just by being near Jesus. 
There's no activity. There's no prescription in this. It's just saying, for those of us who are near Jesus, you're going to start smelling like Jesus. That's about as easy of an effort that there could possibly be. I make no effort to smell like the farm show when I go to the farm show. It just happens. The same way, if you just give your time to being near Jesus, Jesus begins to permeate upon you. And then when you walk out of his presence and you begin to be in the workplace or other places where people who aren't near Jesus, they begin to smell you and they will know that there's something different about you. Peter talks about it that we need to be prepared to have an answer for the hope that we have. Because part of the smell of our lives is hope. When people see you going through a hard time, which is why Paul starts there. We're not absolved from experiencing hardship as believers. But when we go through hardship as believers, we discover the greater character and love of God. And when people start seeing you who are going through hard times are, are not hopeless, it begins to smell as something different than what they're used to. And it draws them out to ask the question. And so Peter, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 15, says, be prepared to give an answer for why you have hope and respond to that question with gentleness and respect. So we then live out this aroma of Christ just by being near Jesus. It will happen. It will be different. And people will ask why. It's not a formulation. It's just being near Jesus, and it changes you. So then you have to wrestle with this idea that if you begin to be so near Jesus and you become intentional about being in the Word of God, that, that you will then take on some of the qualities of that that can cause people to reject and reject you in particular. Look at verse 17. It says, Unlike so many... We, Paul and his, his companions, do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, we speak in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some, some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? No, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So if you're near Jesus, you will begin to be transformed. And, 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 and it's a, a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you manufacture. It's a work of the Spirit. And it begins to affect other people. And this is where Paul's saying, listen, you can call me invalid as an apostle. But when I was among you, was there not a work of God in your lives? Was there not a change of their heart that was written not by a human hand, but rather written by the Spirit of God upon the tablet of their heart? Was there not change when he was with them that they began to pursue Jesus when before that they didn't even know who Jesus was? So while they're in trying to invalidate his authority, they could not argue the fact that when they were together with Paul, their hearts were turned towards Jesus. 
their hearts were turned towards Jesus, and they began to serve after Jesus. And what he says is this isn't a commendation for himself, but rather to say his competency was not in himself, but it was upon the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of people, including Paul's life. I think it's such an important verse to understand that competency is not about your educational resume. Your competency happens just by being near Jesus and letting the Holy Spirit and all his vast resources and resume be what works in you and then through you. You see, that's one of the things that I think is really difficult for us as human beings to understand because we tend to get so nervous about the fact, I don't know how God can use me. I only have these gifts, whatever they are. As soon as you think that way, I can already tell you, you have poor theology because it suggests that the success of a person being able to see another heart transformed by the, re- the work of God in your life and through your life, you're believing that it's about your skill set and your giftedness. And the reality is, it's not about you at all. It's about a person who's been near Jesus, begins to smell of Jesus. God begins to to permeate your life to where when you walk, wherever you walk, you smell of Jesus, and it causes people to then be provoked by the Holy Spirit, who then does the work. You see, the Holy Spirit is who makes us smell. When we're near God, Jesus was the one that said, when you open the word of God, the Holy Spirit's role in that moment, when you open the word of God, is to guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit's also to be that inner counselor to know know how to live. So all the step of the way, God is making the work happen in you. It's not your own skills. It is the work of God. And when you're being in the word like that and you're walking with the Holy Spirit, you're going to smell. People are going to then begin to be puzzled what's going on inside of you. It begs the question and the Holy Spirit does his work. The Holy Spirit will change the hearts of others. The Holy Spirit is the one who will draw the heart of another. So it's not on you or I as to whether or not somebody receives the smell of our life as either life or death. It's on the work of God. Which is why he says here, your competence is not in yourself. How can we claim such a thing? But he has made competent all of us as ministers by the work of the Spirit not by the letter of a law. So the competency of this room is more significant than any of us could imagine. God literally can take any person here in this room and make them an effective ambassador for the gospel of Christ beyond your wildest imagination just by merely being near Jesus. That's the simplicity of this. All you have to do is draw near to him, and he draws near to you. And when you do so, and you saturate yourself in knowing him and understanding him, you will become a different person by the work of the Spirit. And without you even realizing it, people are beginning to watch the transformation in your life. And it provokes them either to wonder or to question you directly. Which then leads me to a couple takeaways. The reality is this. Every single person in this room has a smell. A smell to their life. It's either a smell that's just common when we've run into it before, or it's a smell of Christ that is uncommon and begs us to question what is going on. 
And the second takeaway is this, that if we smell of something, I want to smell of whatever it is that smells of Christ. And so, and everything we're given by Paul here is that that happens when we just stay near to him. When we stay near to his word that is written for us and let the Holy Spirit work through his word in our life and we begin to live that out in our life, yes, our lives will truly smell different. But here's a takeaway that's rather shocking. The way you and I smell or the way you and I live our life literally can matter as life or death to another. Our lives, how we smell, how we live is life or death for others. Whether they accept Jesus Christ or not, your life reminds them when there's an aroma of Christ, reminds them that they don't have Christ and that they need him. Or it tells them that they have Christ and they need to get near him, but they've been maybe walking on their own and their smell has waned over time because they've not been near Jesus for a long time. And again, by the way we live, God uses this. Verse 15 says, God uses our aroma that is sourced in Christ as a means by which he helps people see that they're in life or they're pursuing death. So it's a matter of life and death. And lastly, lest you start thinking this is about steps one, two, three, four, and five, our competency is merely through Jesus Christ alone. As gifted as many of you are here in this room, that giftedness God can use, yes, certainly, but I have seen some of the most simply gifted people have the most profound impact just because they radiated Christ everywhere they went. Not necessarily with words, just by radiance of character, radiance of life choices, and yes, sometimes radiance of the words. God changes lives. Let's pray. So God, I, I am personally challenged that, again, not to find the source of life impact by some kind of creative word or action on my part, but just to keep so close to you. Staying near to you is so pivotal and so important. Lest I grow cold and begin to think through human wisdom. Lest I grow so cold and I begin to find confidence in myself. Oh God, draw each heart here by your Holy Spirit. You can, there's, you know, over 400 here in this room. You can draw each person right now to wanting to be closer to you than they were yesterday. And God, if they do are being drawn, I pray, Lord, that you, when they draw near to you, that they will find life like they haven't found in a long time. And they'll find joy like they haven't found in a long time. And then, God, make them smell of you so significantly that people will begin to take notice and begin to pursue Jesus. And God, for those here in this room who have never given their lives to Jesus, they've never surrendered to him. This message is of, of aroma. Maybe they're here because they've been near a life, and so they're curious. This message might be a reminder of what they don't have. God, I pray that you'd soften their heart and allow them to pursue Christ and his triumphal procession. 
pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see the good works in your life and glorify God on the day he visits us. So it's even possible for the pagan to worship and acknowledge who God is by a life so well lived. This happens only because something arrested their attention. And so it's my prayer over you that if you are a child of God, that something in your life will arrest the attention of others to say, there's something different in you. And it will cause them to go on a journey to discover who Jesus is. And if that is not your story, where you are not a child of God, you don't even know him, we'd be glad to pray with you. We have people that will be under the cross over here. We'd be glad to pray with you. I'll be up front. We would love to talk with you. This is about discovering the triumphal procession in our victorious King, Jesus Christ. We want you to experience that same parade with us. So go being that aromatic smell of Jesus so that others may know. Be blessed. You're dismissed.